Welcome to the Doyen of Death podcast, funeral planning for those who don't plan to die. It's all about end-of-life issues and getting the conversation started about our 100% mortality rate. This series is hosted by Gail Rubin, certified thanatologist and the Doyen of Death. A Doyen is a woman who's considered senior in a group and knows a lot about a particular subject. Well, that's Gail. She knows all about creating the party no one wants to plan, a funeral or memorial service. She discusses the changes death can bring, and she'll make you laugh. This series includes episodes previously released as A Good Goodbye, a treasure trove of evergreen podcasts about funeral planning issues. This podcast reveals some of the mysteries and shares advice and tools that can reduce stress at times of grief, minimize family conflict, and help create a good goodbye. Remember, just as talking about sex won't make you pregnant, talking about funerals won't make you dead, and your family will benefit from the conversation. So, here to talk about the subjects we sometimes avoid is author, speaker, and the doyen of death, Gail Rubin. Welcome. This is part two of our two-part episode. If you missed part one, do yourself a favor and go back to listen. And now back to more with the doyen of death. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Jeff Peeler. So Jeff, when we went to the break, we were starting uh, to talk about the discussions you and your wife have been having about what it will be like after you're gone. What what were you leading towards talking about in, in that regard? Well, you know, I have... Uh, I, I mentioned earlier my desire to sort of control this process, and um, I've, there have been times where I've, I've clearly over-controlled it or tried to. Not, not with my wife. Uh, Jean and I have been totally open with each with each other, and uh, uh, you know we have conversations now. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, I show her how you have to reset the VCR, and, and you know, and, and and you know, it's everyone knows why I, she needs to know that, and you know where where the tax forms are kept, and you know, this is all just the way it is, and. It's gotten to a point where it's sort of unsaid uh, why these things need to be uh, discussed, uh, but it's totally accepted. And we've also had the, the very hard decision uh, discussion. The, the, you know, when I'm not here, um, you know, what do you, what relationships are you going to feel comfortable with? And you know, my feelings about, you know, I want her to be the happiest woman in the world, and she is. I put her through. So much the last ten years, and I would I would be ecstatic if she could make up for lost time in her life, however she felt it was appropriate. So uh, those mm-hmm. are pretty elemental discussions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, on the other hand, we've we've been, and I think I've erred on trying to protect people uh, a little bit from that from the grieving process, um, and I, I'd say uh, uh, particularly with regard to my children. I've got, I've got four children, um, uh, ranging from age 38 down, down to my daughter, who's 24. And I have, a, I have a son, 26, and a daughter, 24. And um, with these two, 
with the two younger kids, they're both of them, my wife and I have perceived to be a bit more vulnerable about this whole process. And so we've sort of spared them the, you know, the, the play-by-play, if you will, the result of every scan. And, and my older boys have been interested in that, and, and I've shared it with them. But the younger, not so much. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I, my, my, I told my, my friend Peter about my desire that, that maybe the, the, the coffin project which we were engaged in at the time, um, if he runs into my kids or something, was something that we, my wife and I, had decided not to share with them at this point during the construction phase. And Peter, in his wisdom, said, you know, Jeff, I I think they're very much old enough to to handle this, and you're really doing them a disservice by, um, uh, by keeping them separate from this very important part of your life right now that they should share in in this whole process and they should share in the meaning of it and by you know they, they, he said that if if you if you don't give people the chance to uh, to express the full range of their emotion at, 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 and reaction to what you're going through then when you leave them they're they're there's a feeling that there's so much left unsaid that, gee, if I'd known that, I would have said this to Dad. And and I, and I think he, and I I came to see that he was right. And so, with with my wife's permission, I um, and of course by then the New York Times piece was going to come out, and so that you know that forced that certainly forced my hand because I didn't want my my two kids, the youngest kids, to hear about this from someone else. Mm-hmm. And so I, I went to first uh, my 26-year-old son, and I explained what I was doing all these days that I was down at the shop with Peter. And I said, I've written something about it, which I actually submitted to a newspaper, and it was accepted, and would you like to read it? And interestingly, he said, no. <laughs> he, he didn't want to read it. He, uh, he just wanted to kind of think about what I'd told him that thus far. And I th- he was not terribly uh, comfortable with going any further with it at that point. And I said, okay. Hmm. And then um, a day or so later, I spoke to my daughter. And she's much more sort of auditory in her learning um, and than, than visual. And I explained to her what I'd been doing. And she kind of paused for a second and and I said, would you like me to read to you what I've sent in to the New York Times that was accepted? And she said, yeah. And she and I have a, she and I have a very close, very close relationship. And so we, we both kind of popped up onto her bed with a dog and a cat. And, and I started reading. And I, I read her the, the piece. And... Um, at the end, uh, she paused and said, well, I need to, I need to think about that too. <laughs> um, but, but I could tell that she was, she was in a different place. She was, uh, much more at ease with it. And, and I said, well, you know, if you have any questions, you want to talk about it some more anytime with, you know, we'll, I'll make time. And, and that's, there's nothing more important in my life than, than giving you time to understand all this. 
Mm-hmm. And so about two days later, I was sitting in our living room reading, and she came up to me, and she's a, she's a calligrapher as a, as a part-time hobby. And she came up to me with a piece of paper, and written on this piece of paper in absolutely exquisite calligraphy was the quote, which is embossed on the underside of the coffin uh, uh, lid. And the, the quote is, I have loved the stars too fondly to be fearful of the night. A beautiful quote. And she had done that in calligraphy. And she handed it to me and she said, Daddy, I want you to have this and I want it to go in the coffin with you. I want you to have something now that I worked really hard on and something that will bring you joy and something that you know will be with you. Oh, nice. And, you know, so there, I'd have to say, you know, besides the, the immediate rush of, of emotion, of, of just love, you know, I mean, that's what else can you say? Um, mm. I also felt kind of foolish that I'd kept this from her. Um, and I, but I also felt, I felt very relieved that I had, that I had broken this, this bottleneck and, and that her emotions could flow out. And subsequent mm-hmm. to that, my, my son, my youngest son, has, he has come around, he's read the piece and I called him, I called him the other day, or, or I guess actually he called me, I was down at the shop with Peter and we were we were doing the final, we were putting handles on, 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 the, on the coffin. And, uh, you know, Ben asked me, uh, what, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm down here with Peter. We're putting the handles on. And he said, well, make sure that they're going to hold. I don't want you dropping through this thing. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that's, that's, that's his way of accepting this whole thing, too, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. everyone has to do it their own way. But well, I think we're all on the same path, maybe in little different places, but we're all headed for the same destination. Yeah. We actually have a phone call for you. Um, a lady named Kyle would like to speak to you. Uh, are you available? Hello? I am. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Where are you? Uh, where are you calling from? I'm calling from, I have to turn off my, because I'm listening to this. Um, I'm calling from Doylestown, Pennsylvania, and I'm actually, I wrote uh, a response that was published in the New York Times. Really? Um, <laughs> I did, because I'm so touched by this, and I was so happy to, to see that, that Jeff was going to be on your show tonight. Um, I'm trying to start this little business of helping people plan their funerals in advance, and I'm just so glad that there's people out there already like doing it and talking about it. And I just want to um, just say how touched I am and appreciative of, of, of what you're doing and putting your story out there so that other people can be um, influenced and inspired to do it. Because knowing that it was hard and that your family struggled with it at first and you persevered, I feel like that's so great for other families to hear and other individuals to hear like to 
to press on if, if you feel inclined to do that because I feel like the joy that's going to come out of it is so great. Well, I, I couldn't agree more, and thank you for your thoughts. I, you know, I, the truth is my, my pulpit is about six inches high. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I don't, you know, what works for me may not work for someone else, but I can say that without, without question that this is a topic that people really do deep down in their hearts want to talk about, mm-hmm. and it's something that our society clearly struggles with. Um, it's, you know, people sort of go off to the hospital and die and someone else deals with the, you know, the realities of a dead body and, you know, all these things. But the fact is there's so much beauty to be lived before all that. And you really only have that, that, uh, that possibility if you would acknowledge it and talk about it. And so it has certainly worked for me. And uh, I, have, I applaud your work at, at getting others to talk about it. It's not something that I do easy, easily, uh, honestly. I'm, I'm, this is, I'm, it may not seem it, but I, I'm really a very private person, and this, this, this is not, this is not uh, something that I do with ease to talk about this. But it's been such a, an epiphany for me that I, I, I do think that it's a message that I'd like to get out. And, you know, I've, I've had to give up my surgical practice because, you know, my fingers at some point went numb from the chemotherapy. Oh, and, okay. And, and so I've had a hard time helping people, and this is a way that I can mm. help people. Absolutely. We have to take a, our last break, but we will come back and continue the conversation with Dr. Jeff Peeler. Gail Rubin, the doyen of death has been producing Before I Die festivals for years. These festivals get end-of-life planning conversations started by putting the fun in funeral planning. Outside-the-box activities break down barriers to discussing death and planning for our 100% mortality rate. And now, Gail has created the Before I Die Festival in a Box, the comprehensive guide to producing your own community festival. It includes everything you need to create a successful event. How to find sponsors, build a team, market the event, schedule speakers, topics for discussion, workshop ideas, and much, much more. To learn how to get your Before I Die Festival in a Box, visit BeforeIDieFestivals.com or call 505 205- Welcome back. Continuing the conversation with Dr. Jeff Peeler. And, you know, you've been a a medical doctor, a thoracic surgeon. I mean, they cut people's chests open. And uh, were you working on hearts or lungs or? Yeah, I did um, all that. Yeah, yeah. I did open heart surgery for about 20 years, and in the last five years of my practice, I pretty much specialized in just cancer surgery of the lungs and esophagus. Mm. So, so you've been a doctor, and you've dealt with patients and their families, and, and now for the past 10 years, you've been a patient dealing with the medical establishment. Uh, what kind of advice would you give to 
patients and their families who are dealing with serious diagnoses from both your perspectives as a doctor and a patient? Well, I think, you know, I, I think that these days the, the level of communication between physicians uh, is, is, uh, is so advanced that there, it, with very, very few exceptions, there, there's no, there's not one person who has, you know, a, a, a solution to a problem that no one else does. And I, I think that a people have a tendency, particularly when they hear bad news, to, you know, go someplace else and try to find good news. Mm. And I, I think that that's, you know, I, I think people should get as many opinions as they feel comfortable with. But I would also say that at some point, uh, one has to accept where you are, and to and to go with the options that are presented. Uh, I um, I have not, you know, scurried around the country looking for this guy or that guy. I have decided, and and this is just my personal decision. I have decided to find a group of physicians here in town who I have confidence in who I know want nothing but to, to give me the best care that they can and who I know care for me as a person. And mm-hmm. I have simply said, I will do what you want. I, don't, I, I have, I suppose, the medical knowledge to second-guess them, but I don't. And I would recommend that uh, approach to others. It's, it's quite a bit harder being a physician with, with, with cancer, uh, certainly terminal cancer, than I, than I think if, if one is not sort of groomed in the medical profession. You know, the, a physician simply knows too much. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 know, I know every little uh, uh, grimace on, someone, on my oncologist's face when he comes into the room uh, that he's got bad news to deliver to me, and when he kind of shifts in his chair, I know that he's thinking of how to parse words a little bit, and you know. So, I, it's having been on uh, on that side of it, uh, I, I understand that, and and it is so. I think it is harder to be a physician because you just know you you, you know what the course of the disease is, and. And, you know, you've seen people die, and, and dying from cancer is, is not always an easy death, and everyone who has lived that knows that. Now, I have no idea what the quality of my death is going to be in terms of physical uh, challenge, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid of it, and uh, I, I know that I'll be well cared for. Now, having said all that, I mean, I think you, you do need to go to a place that, that has experience in your particular problem. Uh, and if I, I guess I'm thinking specifically of cancer. I, I think it, it's, it's you, you, you don't want to, I think, uh, go to a, an institution or a physician who, who sees, you know, one case per year of whatever it is you might have. Um, uh, so I think it is important to find people with 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 experience. Um, mm-hmm. But short of that, I think it's important to surround yourself with people that you feel confident, have your best interests at heart, and who care for you, 
and are going to, um, you know, be willing to stay on the lookout for everything that's new and, um, and make that available to you. Mm-hmm. I've had several treatments, uh, uh, including the one that I'm doing right now, which for logistical reasons were not available in my home hospital here in Kansas City. And uh, with the absolute blessing of my oncology team, I went up to actually actually to Lincoln, Nebraska, and found and they put me in, in touch with an oncology group up there who were a couple of weeks ahead of, of getting each of these treatment things, and we wanted to get them started. And so I, you know, I went there, and I, and and I think it's important to be to find a, uh, a treatment team that's not afraid to send you elsewhere if they think that there's someone else who might have, you know, a one or two week um, uh, advantage if if indeed your your uh, uh, survival is is measured in those terms. On the other hand, I, I think I feel very sad for the people that that go to. Mexico and, and do various what I would consider non-traditional therapies. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm certainly not saying that that American medicine has all the answers, and I and I know that the you know that, that there are answers to be found in all kinds of, of different natural substances. I'll accept that, but I think that the people people that go sort of from one to the next to the next to the next without simply stopping and saying death is coming and the job now is not to keep looking for some um, some uh, hope for cure but the, what what the job is now is to accept death and to by accepting that enjoy the last moments that you have and that is incredibly possible for everyone you just have to stop and enjoy what's there, and see the beauty in the world and the beauty that surrounds you. Mm-hmm. Will you be going on hospice care at some point when when you feel like you're getting to that that end point? Yeah, you know, I'm not there yet. Um, mm-hmm. I would do whatever my family wants with that regard. Um, and this, um, you know, I, I, I've, and let me just say this, you know, my wife and, and I have had this, the kind of hard conversation such as this, I, I turned, I turned to her, this was probably about six months ago. We were kind of laying in bed, going off to sleep. And I said, you know, it might be really creepy for you if I die in this bed. Would you like mm-hmm. me to die? I, will, I definitely want to die at home. No question mm-hmm. about that. And then I think she's at ease with that. But I said, would, would it feel better to you after I'm gone if I have not died in this bed? And I said, I'm, I'm absolutely happy to do whatever it, you know, if that's something that I just, I said, I just want you to think about that. And I will do whatever I can to make that, you know, the way that, that, that makes you most comfortable. And she you know, she said, well, I have, I'll, let me think about it. But she said, I, I, I think that the mechanics would be that we'd probably have a hospital bed or something for you maybe. But she said, I don't I, She said she didn't know. And that's fine. But, you know, we had the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But these are not, you know, they're not easy conversations. 
for sure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, also, and, and this is the, uh, a, a very difficult thing, but I guess we're, we're getting near the end here, but let me just put this out there. As, as, as a physician, you know, one, one has access to all sorts of, uh, of uh, medications and drugs and all this kind of thing. And um, I, I don't know if you want to talk at all about, about um, an elective end of life, but I, I've obviously given it some thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if things get, not so much for me, but if I'm feeling just, um, ashamed or uh, guilty that my family is just having to do too much for me. You know, should I just kind of speed this whole thing along? And once again, you know, I discussed that with, with my friend Peter. And, and you know, Peter watched his mother die. And um, he said, you know, Jeff, I, I think you're trying to control too much here. You have to understand that you're not the only one doing the dying. Everyone is going to die a little bit when you die. Mm-hmm. And if you just sort of, you know, pull the plug when things get hard, you just sort of vanish. And if you vanish, you've deprived people of the chance to show you how much they care for you. And you, you deprive them of understanding why it is that you have to leave. And so, I, you know, I, I've gone on record as saying I, I do believe that one should have the option of electively ending one's life, but I'd have to say I'm, I'm much more hesitant to exercise that. Um, but once again, um, it's something that's worth talking about. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, one last question. Where are you keeping the coffin? Oh, it's down in the shop. Uh, We have a a wood-burning fire down there, and it's been really cold in Kansas City of late, as it has been everywhere. And so we have this wood stove totally stoked up with nice oak, and we sit in front, Peter and I sit in front of of the fire, and then to our right is this beautiful piece of, of wood, and we turn, we put our feet up on it, and we drink a beer. And it's there, and it's uh, something that talks to us, and it's a reminder of our friendship, and it's a reminder of the frailty of life, and it's a reminder of how we should live life. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Jeffrey Peeler, thank you so much for spending this time and sharing your thoughts with us. It's been a magical and and enlightening hour, and it flew by way too fast. Well, thank Um, you so much, Gail. I'm I'm very flattered that you you cared for my opinion. I really am. Thank you. Thank you. So remember, you can download resources from my website at agoodgoodbye.com. And remember... Talking about sex won't make you pregnant. Talking about funerals won't make you dead. So everybody, start a conversation today. Gail Rubin, the doyen of death, is the author of three award-winning books. In A Good Goodbye, Funeral Planning for Those Who Don't Plan to Die, learn how to save money, reduce family conflict, and minimize stress 
at a time of grief. Just as talking about sex won't make you pregnant, talking about funerals won't make you dead, and your family will benefit from the conversation. Kicking the bucket list. 100 downsizing and organizing things to do before you die brings a light touch to downsizing and organizing for end-of-life issues. And hail and farewell, cremation ceremonies, templates and tips helps you easily create meaningful memorial services with sample scripts, suggested readings, and music recommendations. These fine books by Gail Rubin, The Doyen of Death, are available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. For more information, visit agoodgoodbye.com. Thank you for joining us on the Doyen of Death podcast. You can find episodes of this podcast and past episodes of A Good Goodbye with Gail Rubin on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information on Gail's work, visit agoodgoodbye.com. <laughs>